1: Welcome to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Bell, associate professor of political science, and today I'm joined by Joseph Blocher and Daryl A. H. Miller, authors of *The Positive Second Amendment: Rights, Regulations, and the Future of Heller*, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Joseph is the Lanty L. Smith Professor of Law at Duke University Law School, and Daryl is the Melvin G. Shim Distinguished Professor of Law at Duke University Law School. Welcome to New Books in Political Science,
2: Joseph and Daryl. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you.
1: Your book insists that the Second Amendment exists in the borderlands, your word, between political, politics and law, and individuals in the state. And you're aiming to recover a discourse that accommodates both a right to bear arms and reasonable legislation. Um, Before we discuss your fascinating book and its thesis, would you just tell me how each of you came to write this book and to think so critically about the Second Amendment.
0: Sure. Um, and thanks again for having us on the on the show. So uh, Joseph and I um, have both been writing on Second Amendment issues uh, for uh, over a decade now. Uh, we had co-written a, a couple of law review articles uh, prior to working on this book project. Uh, and as it happens, um, a, a mutual friend and a colleague of ours at a different institution had called and uh, was putting together a series on civil rights and civil liberties uh, and was uh, wondering if we were interested in doing a Second Amendment book. And I walked right down to Joseph's office and said, hey, uh, this has sort of landed in our lap. Uh, we've written before, uh, I think the time's ripe uh, for uh, putting together a book. and uh, next thing you know we are uh, we're on a sort of four year odyssey uh, that uh, culminated
2: in this uh, in this book and i'll just add that i think one of the reasons we thought that the time was right is that the second amendment as a matter of constitutional law underwent this massive transformation in 2008 when the supreme court decided this uh, major case called district of columbia versus heller which really changed as a matter of law the way that the 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 amendment was interpreted and applied but even 10 years later, there had not been much scholarly work, at least many scholarly monographs, addressing at a broad scope the, the history and the sort of future of the amendment and uh, especially as a matter of constitutional law. And there were articles out there, but we thought that the the scholarly, scholarly literature was – there was a gap. And so we thought, well, maybe we can uh, with this book help fill it.
1: I want to talk to you later about scholarship and the uh, dearth of uh, law professors who, and actually political scientists and historians who deal with this uh, later in the podcast. But uh, thanks for contextualizing it uh, before we begin the discussion of the book. Your book begins with a political puzzle. Um, After the killing of children and adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School, Senators Joe Manchin and Pat Toomey offered a proposal for background checks on gun sales so that they would include gun shows and online sales. And you note that even though 90% of Americans and three quarters of NRA members supported universal background checks, the Senate rejected the Manchin-Toomey amendment. And the power of the lobby, lobbyists, such as the NRA, may help explain this disjuncture between public opinion, and our public policy. But your book suggests that in the case of the Second Amendment, powerful constitutional rhetoric frames Americans' understanding of what is politically appropriate, particularly that background checks might violate a Second Amendment right to own guns. And the the book suggests that this disjuncture between the popular conception and the legal understanding of the Second Amendment is really important. Um, And you see the political terrain as crowded by two sets of extremists, which you think are both incorrect. And I'm wondering if you'd briefly explain these two extreme views and what your research leads you to conclude about the meaning of the Second Amendment, just to get the basic thesis of the book on the table.
2: Yeah, I think that any any even casual observer or participant in the in the gun debate is often, you know, feels drowned out by these these loud voices on what I guess I would call the extremes of people on the one hand saying um, you can't, it's not constitutional to have any kind of gun regulation because the Second Amendment is an absolute. This would be, you know, a view associated with like a, a very extreme gun rights position. And then you might see others saying essentially that we need to confiscate and take away all guns in order to keep people safe. I would say that is sort of the extreme gun regulation view. Some of those people call for the repeal of the Second Amendment, for the, um, for the overturning of that Supreme Court decision in Heller. And what we're trying to say in the book, or one of the things we're trying to say in the book, is that both of those extreme views are missing what the constitutional tradition, history, and doctrine really is, which is that constitutional um, uh, the constitutional right to keep and bear arms, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, can exist and always has uh, coexisted with certain kinds of reasonable regulation and that we could um, all be better off to focus on what the Constitution actually permits instead of getting caught up in this kind of absolutist um, rights talk.
0: And I think I'd add to that by saying the impulse of of Joseph and I in writing the book was to say that there is something different between these political arguments which tend to migrate toward the extreme and um, what we traffic in as law professors, which is legal arguments, and that what we wanted to do with the book was to uh, make intelligible um, and accessible uh, to both lawyers but also a lay audience um, the tools of legal argument um, that uh, we believe are falsifiable uh, in a way um, that sometimes um, political arguments are not.
1: In the book, though, you make a connection between the two. You you see that in politics, a legal argument is being made. And, and often in the text, it seems as if you're saying that there's something particular about the Second Amendment, that it's not the same as making political arguments using the First Amendment. I'm wondering if that's a correct assumption about the book.
2: Well, I mean, I think that you know all constitutional rights have their own sort of you know um, political pathologies and get um, sort of applied and misapplied in political rhetoric in, in different ways. I think that is also true of the Second Amendment. I mean, to go back to the example that you raised and the one that we opened the book with, which is the Senate's rejection of the Manchin-Toomey Amendment. Um, one of the things that's striking about that, when you look at, well, how did this even not not, not even get to a vote in the Senate, given that ninety percent of Americans and three quarters of gun owners supported it? Um, Gallup did a poll and asked people who opposed the amendment, um, uh, sorry, opposed the, uh, the mansion to amendment that is, that is expanded background checks. Why do you oppose this? And the number one reason given is that it would violate the second amendment. Now as a matter of law, that is uh, like incontrovertibly incorrect. There is no strong legal claim against, um, and it wasn't even a universal background check, but expanded background checks violating the second amendment. There's just that, that, that doesn't carry water as a matter of law. But people are invoking it sort of in political discourse. And it's not necessarily anything wrong with that. I mean, we all the time refer to the First Amendment when we're talking about free speech, even if we're not talking about the government restricting anybody's speech. But one of the things that we think is can be problematic is when people sort of both misunderstand what the law is and then invoke it in ways that shut down rather than contribute to uh, to political discussion. So part of this is a, is a bit of a brush clearing sort of clarification exercise to try to try to address at least some of those pathologies.
1: I actually, I don't know whether we're just <clears throat> push on this now or later, but I'll do it right now since you've you've brought up the connection between political and legal discourses. The scholarship in the Second Amendment has a political quality to it that is not present in some other legal scholarship. There have been prizes revoked. There has been data that has had to be uh rolled on for lack of a better word. Um, and the scholars have had to admit it, admit that there were problems with it in the historians work on the second amendment and in the legal scholarship, it seems far more polemical, even in the legal scholars words than for example, something on the fourth amendment. Would you agree with that? Uh,
0: I, I totally agree with that. Um, I mean, Joseph and I have had this discussion many times, which is there's only a handful of um, constitutional rights that um, we uh, seem to sort of galvanize public opinion in in ways that uh, frankly to lawyers are Um, non-legal. Here's a concrete example. Um, People often talk about um, um, the NFL or Twitter or some private organization as uh, violating the person's First Amendment rights. But as lawyers, um, and I know that uh, Twitter or the NFL is not a state actor. They, they're not governments. Um, so talking about free speech in a constitutional register when applied to private actors like this is, is a kind of category error. And the Second Amendment has the same kind of gloss. That is, people treat the Second Amendment uh, in ways um, – that don't neatly map onto what we understand other kinds of constitutional rights to do, and I mean that's one of the impetuses for the project, which is to say, um, if you are going to make claims like, you know, Walmart is violating my Second Amendment rights, you you need to sort of understand the what kind of claim that you're making and 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 whether that's recognizable under sort of any uh, recognized set of rules about how lawyers understand the law, and not only lawyers, but how law works. Um, and so um, the, the very kind of political um, overlay that you've described, the political, you know, the constitutional politics is part of what the, um, has driven our desire to, to do this book, which is to talk about how much of this is uh, uh, this rhetoric is a constitutional politics and how much is constitutional law
2: on that question of scholarship I and mean, I think you're exactly right Susan that especially if you look backwards over the past few decades I mean the, some of the scholarship written about the second amendment or firearms law more generally or firearms policy is you know it, it frankly falls below the standard that we would expect of legal scholarship um some of it is ab- or of scholarship generally I mean you sort of you know gestured towards a few of the major the major scandals but you know historians like Making up, making up historical sources, um, you know, scandal which resulted in the you know, loss of the Bancroft Prize, um, data which could not be reproduced um, or which was lost. Um, th- those are those are, those shake people's faith. I think in in the scholarly in the scholarly enterprise. I mean, one reason for that, I think, is that people feel passionately about the um, this this uh, this issue in ways that. You know, maybe you're not entirely unique. I think those who write about reproductive rights and other areas of constitutional law probably encounters, encounter sort of similar, similarly charged discussions. But there seems to have been traditionally kind of a two-teams approach. Um, you're either for or against the Second Amendment. And, um, you know, I think we've both experienced that sitting on panels you know when we write on other areas when i write on the first amendment nobody ever asks in a in a in a you know a scholarly setting are do you do you support the first amendment it's just not a cognizable question the questions are all about well what does it mean and are the courts applying it correctly but with the second amendment you get this kind of for and against um kind of kind of view and i think partly that's just because people care so much i mean again i'd say that you know, Daryl and I write in lots of different areas. In addition to the Second Amendment, this is the only one that you know for which I get hate mail, um, or letters that are you know covered in swastikas, or you know three minute long voicemails, you know ranting and semi threatening. That, that doesn't happen when I write about the First Amendment or refugee law or any or, or anything else. But <clears throat> to end on a hopeful note, that is starting to change. Uh, I mean, I think that the the field is diversifying. Um, it's harder and harder to put people. You know, on one team or another, and I think that's all to the good. So I'm I'm hopeful going forward. Even though I think looking backwards, it has traditionally been sort of you're with us or against us.
1: And I think that the book makes this contribution. The comparison to reproductive rights is an excellent one. I, I think that the Second Amendment scholarship is fascinating because it does have this team element it does have a sort of feeling of who has funded, who has encouraged. And I think the history of the scholarship shows that money in was, in fact, devoted to certain kinds of scholarship. And you can see the results. And perhaps part of why Heller comes about in 2008 has something to do with seeding that scholarship so that it's available to make the argument. I think what's important about your book, and I would like to now turn us more towards the argument there, is that it does try not to be on either team and it tries very much to give the best possible account for the right to a firearm and the best possible account for regulating that right. Um, Your title is the positive second amendment and I'd like you to start by saying what you mean by a positive account of the second amendment.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, it's, uh, it's funny because uh, Joseph and I went round and round on what the title should (laughs) be and we've, you know, through many iterations and finally um, alighted on this one. So I think we have at least uh, two or three reasons we um, ended up uh, falling into this um, uh, for the, basically calling on this title as, um, as what we were going to go with. The first is, um, you know, we, uh, as the book sort of says, the ambition is uh, to um, help um, make the dialogue better, to have a sort of positive contribution uh, to the dialogue um, on on gun, um, on gun rights and regulation in a way that avoids the extremes, um, avoids... Um, causing um, uh, conversations to shut down rather than uh, to, um, um, you know, to be uh, developed or structured. Um, The second issue uh, is that um, what we wanted to do was uh, say that, you know, there's a way of talking about the Second Amendment uh, that is actually uh, positive in the sense of Well, Heller is a a decision of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is the expositor of the Constitution of the United States. Um, And so um, uh, taking Heller as a given, uh, what kind of actual understanding of the Second Amendment as law rather than as politics um, is um, um, uh, – yeah you know, as 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 law what kind of what kind of structures what kind of dialogue what kind of tools would we use to understand the second amendment as law
2: and one of the things one of one of the lines we use in the book um this is sort of placing ourselves squarely in the middle of the debate in some ways but in some ways maybe being tendentious with regard to each side um one of the things we say on that on that last point is that this is oversimplifying a bit, but that that liberals need to take the Second Amendment more seriously and that conservatives need to take the Second Amendment more seriously as law. And taking the Second Amendment seriously as law means recognizing that it, like all constitutional amendments, all constitutional rights, are subject to regulation. Now, the First Amendment is not absolute. Neither is the Fourth or any other um, constitutional right. Um, and that, that's just part of how we do constitutional law. Kind of, again, sort of talking to the talking to the extremes. Now, one result of that is that our sort of hope to develop this positive vision hopefully pulls people to see where the where the tradition and the doctrine and the law are it also runs the risk of sort of alienating us from both sides um and i'll say that we you know we get criticism from both sides that we are either too sympathetic to gun regulation or that we're too sympathetic to the supreme court's decision in heller to which we devote almost an entire chapter um not not necessarily defending but as you say giving it its best case and arguing that it is um it is the law of the land and is not going anywhere And on that, I would just add one one particularly interesting data point is that we received a letter from Justice Stevens, um, who was the author of the lead dissent in District of Columbia versus Heller um, and a a strong critic of the the court's Second Amendment doctrine and of the Second Amendment as a whole and I'm quoting from memory here, so I might not have this exactly right, but I think I think a line he said and used in the letter was, I remain puzzled why you characterize your view as positive. Um, and so the staking out this kind of middle position, I guess, runs the risk of alienating both flanks. But that's that's the position we've carved out.
1: I think it's a risky strategy, but I think it works very well in the book. Uh, let me push you a little bit more on what it would mean to make a positive account. Uh, you talk about Hillary Clinton and you quote, some of her rhetoric from uh, the presidential, her run for the presidency. A- and you point out that she's she's very much offering what she won't do. And you come back and say that liberals need to offer an account of the Second Amendment rather than a defense against gun rights. And I'm, and, and I think you believe that your book provides that. Um, in addition to other things, and I'm wondering if you could spin that out for listeners. What does come out of this book in terms of a way for people who normally are cautious about gun rights to elaborate in a careful way what the Second Amendment means?
2: It's a really great question and a hard thing to do in this book or any other. Um, you know, w- with with regard to the the Hillary Clinton example, one of the things that we we sort of narrow we sort of um, focus on there is a moment in a debate where she gives an answer along the lines of, I support the Second Amendment, but, and then goes on to say, I also support reasonable gun regulation. And what we're trying to suggest is that that answer, that line is much more effective if it is phrased as, I support the Second Amendment and reasonable gun regulation. Because otherwise it sounds like rights and regulation are you know, contradistinctions and that uh, you have to really struggle to accommodate them both when that's not something that the framing generation or you know, throughout most of American history courts, or um, political actors have had to struggle with. That is, gun rights and regulation have always coexisted. The trick is just figuring out which regulations are permissible and which ones aren't as a matter of constitutional law. Um, But as a matter of sort of the current political landscape, uh, I think that, well, I think a few things. One, the vast majority of gun regulations that people are discussing and debating are nowhere near violating the core of the Second Amendment right. Expanded background checks to take, you know, one obvious example. Properly administered no threat to the Second Amendment. Um, on the other hand, I think those who, you know, strong gun rights proponents um, have a genuine, whether people believe it to be justified or not, a genuine fear um, of being under attack. And that when they hear Hillary Clinton or anybody else um, say, I support the Second Amendment, but it's the but they're going to focus on. Um, this That sounds like, okay, this is just rhetoric and you don't actually believe in my constitutional rights you know, background checks could be the first step towards confiscation or something else. And whether or not those, you know, fears are justified um, or justifiable, I think they're they're deeply felt and that a, a a rhetoric that were more, that began more with the Constitution might be able to sort of mollify some of those concerns and, and lead us all to where I think most people are, which is believing that there are practical ways to reduce gun deaths without violating anybody's constitutional rights.
0: And I, I, I think I would add that, you know, the, the purpose of the book and the ambition of the book is to help and provide a kind of um, arc, not only an architecture but a kind of vocabulary for understanding how um, those how the and works. That is, um, you can talk about the Second Amendment and regulation, and then you have the tools where uh, when you're talking about background checks or you're talking about uh, prohibitions on um, uh, um, domestic batteries from uh, owning firearms, that you have a way of explaining why and how the law uh, with the second amendment accommodates these types of regulations.
1: When I teach the second amendment, my students are always stunned by the paragraph in justice Scalia's majority opinion in Heller, in which he says basically that we're not touching the regulations that are in place for public safety. He is very explicit about that. And I think that the, book does an excellent job of trying to show how not only does Justice Scalia says this, but the courts have in fact upheld thousands of gun regulations that have been passed by local, state, and I think national um, governments. So I I think the, the, the book does a really nice job of showing how the law is connected to politics and policy. Um, Our audience aren't all lawyers, but I I would like very much for you to walk through one of the um, claims that is made in the book, because I think it's helpful for people to understand this issue of, is a right absolute? Uh, At the end of your introduction, you talk about examples of how changing our understanding of the Second Amendment would impact both law and politics. So I was wondering if you would explain a little bit for our listeners about absolute rights and putting second amendment regulation in the context of other amendments and the kinds of rights that they have.
2: It's a great question and a hard one. I mean, this is sort of, um, the heartland of constitutional rights litigation in many ways. And, um, and, uh, you know, the, the rules and standards are, um, are many. Um, but I think one way to understand it is almost kind of visually one, one of the, one of the, um, metaphors we use in the book is that of a map, um, Uh, and there's sort of different ways to think about being on or off of a map. So, so start with the concept that we use in the book of coverage, right? Every right has limits, things it doesn't even reach. When we talk about the freedom of speech, which is guaranteed in the first amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That doesn't actually mean that any form of speech, like any, any words you use are protected or covered at all by the constitution, right? If you are engaged in libel or securities fraud or child pornography that might use words, it doesn't even count as speech. doesn't even get through the door. You can't raise a constitutional claim on that basis. The same is going to be true for the Second Amendment. There are certain things that are just carved out of Second Amendment coverage. That paragraph you referred to in Heller uh, enumerates some of them. Things like felons, um, people who've been adjudicated mentally ill, dangerous and unusual weapons. Elsewhere in the opinion, the court refers to concealed carries, sensitive places like government buildings and schools. Those are just categorically not covered at all. It's kind of absolute... Absolute in the other direction. If you get past that stage of coverage, you're sort of on the map, then you get to the second question of, well, how much protection does this particular thing get? And again, with regard to all constitutional rights, there's sort of varying levels of protection depending on what it is you're talking about. If you're in the context of – I'll use the First Amendment again – context of speech – political speech in a public square gets the highest possible protection, right? It's very hard for the government to justify limiting a person talking politics in a in a traditionally a public forum. On the other hand, something like commercial speech, advertising gets a little less protection. It's easier for the government to justify those kinds of burdens. And we're already seeing the same kind of thing develop um, with regard to the Second Amendment as well, right? Certain kinds of, you know, possessing a handgun in your home for self-defense, is pretty close to the core of the Second Amendment. It's almost the equivalent of the public speech in a public square. Carrying, you know, a high capacity magazine in a public place um, is more equivalent to commercial speech if it's at all covered. And so it's easier for the government to justify. Now, in that sort of mapping of coverage followed by protection, there probably are some if you like to say it's sort of absolute, some things that are just off, uh, just out of bounds. Um, you know, after Heller, we know it's unconstitutional for a city to entirely ban the private possession of handguns. Now, as it turns out, Washington was one of only two cities that had that kind of law. The other one was Chicago that got struck down two years later in a case called McDonald. Um, it's unconstitutional for a state, an entire state to ban the public carry of weapons that some... Illinois was the only state that did that. The court struck that down. So there are some sort of hard lines, but the vast majority of the cases are kind of in between. You know, the government puts on evidence. Um, the um, challenger asserts, you know, a, a conflict with their constitutional interest, and the court has to has to resolve it. And as you say, the vast majority of Second Amendment challenges have failed. And I'm happy to talk about why that is. But that's kind of the the, the overall map. And happy to dig into the into the details. But that's 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 hopefully an overview.
1: I think that's very, very helpful. What I guess I'm going to push on something that maybe the political science listeners will care about and the lawyers might take for granted. I think one of the themes of the book is that we need to think more like lawyers, that constitutional law has rules, and that when we conflate personal political and public policy preferences with constitutional law. We don't get good law and we don't get good policy, but that seems to assume that constitutional law has maybe more of a neutrality than um, some political scientists would suggest it does. Uh, I'm wondering how you feel about formalism versus realism about whether or not the court is its own has its own form of politics, such that it's not necessarily looking as carefully and as objectively as you did in the book about the history of self defense under the common law or the Second Amendment under the um, American constitutional regime.
0: Uh, it's an excellent question, and and I understand that you know you come from the um, and your listeners, many of your listeners come from the sci world, uh, might take issue. Um, uh, I guess in some sense, it's a a revelation of our uh, sort of of our priors that, you know, we actually do believe that um, law uh, is different from politics. And that's and that's a good thing. Um, And that law um, is subject to a set of rules. Now, they can can be kind of fuzzy. They can be a little bit open ended. um, But that there's a, a kind of discourse. There's a kind of rhetoric. There's a kind of grammar for law. Uh, that's different than politics, um, and um, and being um, being familiar with that grammar actually helps you understand when, um, at least identifying when is somebody talking in a political register as opposed to a legal register, um, and I think this is is pretty important because um, you know to the extent that <clears throat> we treat our our Constitution of the United States. Um, Uh, Now, not only as a political document, but as a legal document it is the tool by which we decide when people go to jail and when they go free. I think it's pretty important um, that we understand uh, how that uh, tool works
2: as law. We think that these things are sort of independent but related. Um, You know, this is not ideal on a podcast to invoke another visual metaphor maybe. But if you think about a Venn diagram with sort of three circles, um, one sort of politics – one policy, and one constitutional law, the way we think about it, we should all be focusing on the gun regulations which are in the overlapping space of all three of those things. That is, the gun regulations that everybody should be looking for are the ones that are effective as a matter of policy, like it is the ones that save lives, and that are feasible as a matter of politics, that is, the ones that could actually kind of get passed by a state, local, federal legislature. And then finally, and this is the one that we're focused on, the ones that are constitutional Um, because there could be gun policies out there that is the ones that will be upheld by courts Um, because there could be gun laws out there which are effective as a matter of policy that save lives and that are popular enough to get passed by some kind of legislature. But that's kind of all for naught if uh, at the end of the day, courts are going to strike them down. And so um, the focus of the book is mostly on that sort of the third of those three circles that is understanding like What does the law allow? What does the constitution allow independent of, you know, what do politics allow or what does policy suggest? Now to be clear, I think we believe, and we try to make this clear in the book, that the major obstacles for further gun regulation for those who support it uh, are not constitutional. That is, courts are not striking down a whole lot of gun regulations, at least yet. Um, The primary obstacles are now, as they have been for the past few decades, political obstacles. The people who are opposing regulations are often invoking constitutional law, and to the degree that they're you know, sort of invoking the law as it is not, we want to try to clarify things. But um, we don't think this is a sort of a silver, silver bullet. If you understand the constitutional law, then everything else drops out. Uh, but we do think it's sort of – I guess an easier way to say it is it, it, we believe it to be necessary but not sufficient to the gun debate that the constitutional law be made more clear.
1: I actually think the Venn diagram works very well um, in the podcast uh, environment, because I think that's a great way to visually map it. And I I guess I would um, ask you to expand in two ways. One would be, what is the Venn diagram of agreement on the two sides in terms of constitutional law? We have the Scalia majority opinion, which for our listeners is what lays out this fundamental right to self-defense in the home, as Joseph said earlier, the the sort of narrowest and most agreed upon. Uh, We have a dissent from Justice Stevens saying, no, the original intent of the uh, amendment is strictly about the militia and enabling the militia to have weapons. And then we have a third dissent from Justice Breyer, which tries to accept the um, possible right of self-defense but say that it is still within the purview of uh, the state to to still regulate that kind of access to guns if they think that it increases public safety. What's the Venn diagram of agreement there?
0: Right. So, uh, I mean, in one way, I think it Joseph has sort of already spoken about it, which is I think everybody on the Supreme Court, um, when you look at the the exceptions that you talked about, long standing prohibitions on uh, firearms in the hands of felons or the mentally ill or prohibitions on guns in sensitive places. I think every one of the justices, uh, agree that that's true. And so clearly there are some sort of categorical exceptions, uh, um, both between the Scalia majority and the dissents, uh, categorical exceptions, even if we, um, um, even if you, uh, um, agree with the majority holding um, that the uh, right to, to keep and bear arms is a right uh, to have firearms for personal purposes as opposed to affiliated with um, uh, the militia. So uh, at a categorical level, um, there's there seems to be agreement that just some things are off this map. Um, uh, there also uh, seems to be some, maybe less, but um, some sort of agreement that not everything within um, that falls, sort of falls on the map is protected to the highest level. Now, the tools that the majority and the dissents use to talk about, you know, how you figure out how high, you know, what your elevation on this map is, um, there's there's a difference of opinion. The majority wants to use something that would be more sort of akin to uh, relying just on historical analogs from um, uh, Eighteenth or nineteenth or century regulations, the uh, the descent, especially the Briar descent, is uh, far more willing to uh, entertain what we might think of as presentist, um, um, criminological, or other sociological data. Um, but I, I think that there's also at least some limited agreement that um, not everything is protected to uh, the absolute um, the limits that just saying it's on the map is the end of the uh, the end of the story. Uh, and I think there's broad agreement between both the majority and the dissents on that uh, on that framework too.
2: Yeah, I think understanding those two debates, and you put it really nicely, Susan, just to understand. Like there's really two debates that are happening in the three opinions in Heller. One is Justice Scalia versus Justice Stevens, and the other one was Justice Scalia versus uh, Justice Breyer. And when I say Justice Scalia, I mean the majority opinion that he writes. It's a five justice five justice majority. Um, Scalia versus Stevens is a question of coverage. It's is this about ju- is this limited to is this right limited to the organized militia, or does it um, extend to private purposes like possession of guns for self defense in the home? That debate, we say, is settled. That debate is settled by Heller as a matter of law, and I guess I would I would add to that it's 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 pretty well settled as a matter matter of politics. That part of Heller is a very popular, um, that is the popular understanding of the Second Amendment. Seventy five percent of Americans agreed with it when it was handed down. Um, John McCain and and Barack Obama, who were on the campaign trail at the time, both expressed support for that decision. So. The notion that the second amendment extends beyond the organized militia is we think sort of, at least for now, sort of bedrock, that's not going anywhere uh, as a matter of constitutional law. It's that second debate, the one that, her- the, the that Daryl was just describing um, about sort of what level of protection, how do we evaluate the constitutionality of restrictions on this, you know, use of guns for private purposes that remains looking forward, I think, where there's a lot of debate. And that's kind of what's happening between Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer. And as Daryl says, it in many ways, breaks down to a, a debate about how much do we rely on history alone versus how much do we rely on history plus sort of looking to contemporary uh, empirical evidence of effectiveness of gun laws and so on and so forth.
1: Oh, that's terrific. Thank you very much. Um, what, what are you both thinking about New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York? For our listeners, this is a case that was recently heard by the Supreme Court about a very intricate regulation uh, governing how you can move guns, registered guns in New York city. What are you thinking about this case? And what are you thinking about the nine justices that will hear this case? Justice Stevens and justice Scalia are no longer on the court. We have new people. Are you expecting a very limited decision here? And, And before you talk about what you're expecting, if you can just tell our listeners in a brief way, What's at stake in that case?
0: Great. So, um, uh, just as a matter of full disclosure, uh, Joseph and I, uh, on our on our own behalf, um, uh, with a, a colleague at another school, filed an amicus brief on behalf of neither party in that case. Uh, so, as you said, the the. Reg- I'm
1: going to interrupt you to just to tell our listeners that an amicus brief is a friend of the court brief. It's it's something that uh, historians or lobbyists or religious groups. Anybody can sort of put forth an argument to the court saying, "Here's how we think you should decide the question. And that's not the two parties that are involved, but people who, as the term says, see themselves as having a role in making the law better.
0: Absolutely. Um, so uh, as you noted, the, the the case itself is is peculiar because the regulation is um, I think, a one of a kind. Um, not only is it one of a kind, but it was actually repealed by uh, the city of New York, and not only was it repealed by the city of New York, it was preempted by the state of New York um, subsequently. So um, one of the issues in the case is whether there is even a law to to rule on uh, before the court. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, what is at stake, uh, uh, Joseph and I read uh, all the briefing in the case, and Um, It it became clear that there was uh, basically two issues, one a sort of discrete doctrinal issue and um, one a more theoretical or um, methodological question. The discrete doctrinal issue was um, an issue that has not really been resolved definitively by the Supreme Court, which is to what extent does the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms for personal purposes extend beyond the home? Um, And a lot of the Briefing in the case was about that very question, uh, because uh, New York had made it so that you couldn't carry a, a firearm from one home to another or outside city limits to um, pistol ranges outside the city. And one question was: Is this a is this a question about um, the right to keep arms, or is this a right uh, about the right to bear arms? And that's one part of the litigation. The second part of the litigation, the one that we ended up filing our our brief on behalf of neither party, was, um, well, how are we going to approach even answering that question? As I had indicated before, um, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer disagree as to how should a court evaluate constitutional claims? The um, text, history, and tradition, what is often referred to as a text, history, and tradition approach, would just say we look to uh, historical uh, regulations or or traditions and we abstract from that in some uh, analogical reasoning manner to to conclude whether a regulation is constitutional today or not. Um, The um, Breyer uh, approach uh, says no, um, that's too constrained because airplanes don't exist in 1791, we have to have some mechanism of figuring out whether a regulation of a gun on a plane is constitutional or not and uses other uh, kinds of um, empirical data. The existing, regu- the existing st- structure, the one that has um, been applied throughout the lower courts, is sometimes known as a two-part framework. Uh, the first part of the framework asks questions about constitutional scope. The second one asks about, uh, you know, government justifications for the regulation. And so what the briefing was doing um, and this methodological question was, is that two-step approach, uh, two-step framework um, permissible? Is there an avenue for introducing these kinds of um, uh, criminological or uh, sociological or other kinds of data or uh, the government offering some kind of justification outside history for what it's doing Or does uh, a court, in applying the Second Amendment, have to apply history only?
1: Before we say goodbye, um, I'm wondering what the two of you are working on now, either together or separately.
2: It's a great question. I mean, partly we're holding our breaths waiting to see what happens with the Supreme Court decision. I think we'll have a lot more to work on um, after after we hear from the justices about the Second Amendment. Uh, issues in the in that New York case, and um, we've already scheduled a, are um, already working on a symposium for next uh, next fall. In fact, the fall of twenty twenty to address those issues. Um, we're still working, I think, you know, um, both separately and together on sort of understanding and helping to, or hoping to address and map uh, these doctrinal questions which the court put on the table in two thousand eight with District of Columbia versus Heller, and really has yet to resolve. Um, you know, there are basic unanswered, and in some cases, unasked theoretical questions about what the Second Amendment is for. Um, in, and, and in many ways, I guess, if we can return again to the First Amendment, the last century of First Amendment law and scholarship has been devoted to and shaped by asking that question over and over. Is free speech about you know, democratic participation? Is it about the pursuit of truth? Is it about individual autonomy and self-realization? those same questions haven't been thoroughly asked about uh, the Second Amendment. You know, What does it mean to have a Second Amendment right to self-defense as against private actors, as against the government? Um, how does the right itself further those, those interests? So we're trying to, I guess, excavate both the doctrinal and sort of theoretical foundations of this brand new right. And, and on that, I guess I would say that, um, you know, when we started writing on this we we were we were more alone than we are now, and i don't I don't mean to say totally alone. There have been great scholars, legal and historians and certainly public health scholars who've been working on the issue for a very long time, even before, long before we were. Um, but there are more and more today. and one of the exciting things is that we feel like we're we're trying to pull a lot of that uh, a lot of that stuff together, trying to build a scholarly community. Hopefully, the book helps contribute to that.
1: That's great. And it returns us to the earlier point about the number of scholars and who identify themselves as Second Amendment scholars. In order to do the kind of work that was done with the First Amendment, you need scholarship. And one of the issues has been the hesitancy uh, of law professors or political scientists to identify themselves as Second Amendment scholars. Um, I've certainly been challenged as to why would I even care about writing about such a unpalatable amendment? Why not write about something nicer like free speech? And I think there's something going on here. So it's, it's very hopeful to hear that the symposium, where, where will the symposium be held?
2: Um, uh, Undetermined. The last one we held was here at Duke. Um, We just had a panel in Washington, D.C. on Friday. We've been very active. And I should say when when I say we, uh, I mean me, Daryl, and our colleague, Jake Charles, who is the executive director of something called the Center for Firearms Law, which we just started here at Duke um, last spring. Been very active putting on programming. We have a blog. We do events, um, panels. We help profile scholarship. We give comments to scholars who are working on papers uh, and just need somebody to engage with. So if any listeners are um, thinking about teaching a course, or have questions, or have papers they're working on, or ideas they want to run by, um, you know, those of us who've been in the trenches for a while, um, that's exactly where we where we sort of see ourselves. Hopefully, you know, helping catalyze um, people. And and on that, I, sh- I guess I should emphasize that um, that means everybody, uh, diversity of, of of viewpoints, methodologies, um, you know, backgrounds, priors, um, all all to the good, as far as we're concerned. And there's so many important and
0: interesting questions uh, uh, in the post-Heller world. Um, You know, Joseph has talked about uh, sort of mapping out, you know, what the right does. Um, But, um, you know, there's all kinds of issues about how the right uh, works with other kinds of values, whether we're talking about free speech or uh, religious um, commitments or religious rights. Um, there's a whole set of questions about um, the sort of sociology of firearms in the Second Amendment, um, you know, who who asserts Second Amendment rights and how are those perceived in the public realm. There's just so many interesting questions um, uh, after Heller um, that uh, – uh, you know, we are hoping that this book um, can be part of a much larger and broader um, essential sort of conversation, uh, both in the academy and the public about this this fundamental right.
1: Well, I'd like to encourage everyone to pick up the positive Second Amendment rights regulation and the future of Heller. <clears throat> it's a very accessible book for students and for people who are not constitutional scholars. Uh, obviously, there's more detailed scholarship that both Joseph and Daryl have done and that I recommend as well. The book is available on the Cambridge University Press website and widely online. Um, Thank you so much, Joseph and Daryl, for taking time to talk with us today on the New Books Network. Um, Good luck with your future projects, and we will all be looking to see what happens in New York Rifle and Pistol.
2: Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you.